Hey friends, welcome to a new year and to another solo episode of the All Sorts Podcast with me, your nutrition ride or die, Desiree Nielsen. We are talking sugar today, our nutrition frenemy that instills both admiration and fear in the hearts of food lovers and wannabe well folks everywhere. In this podcast, I'll teach you everything you ever wanted to know about the sweet stuff. And I mean everything. From what sugar actually is, to how sugar is metabolized by the body, and whether or not different forms of sugar like coconut sugar or dates are actually healthier for you. I'll break down the science into digestible bits, lame pun very much intended, so the next time someone tells you that white rice is sugar, you can call their bluff. If you're new around here and wondering who the heck I am, I'm a registered dietitian and two-time best-selling author with over a decade of experience in gut health, chronic inflammation, and plant-based nutrition. And I started this podcast to foster meaningful conversations about how we take care of ourselves. You can call it wellness, but it's wellness that's actually grounded in science, respectful of traditional medicine, and absolutely under no circumstances about restrictive mindsets. Sound good? Let's get started. If you've been around here for a minute, you know the drill. Each solo episode starts with the things I'm currently obsessing over and then moves into the main event, which is Sugar 101. And we'll finish up with a community question before we say bye-bye. So let's dive in. First up, in this edition of Dietitians, they're just like us. I've always been a big skincare junkie, like since I was a teenager. But when I had a major fight with acne in my 30s and then melasma after my second pregnancy, I just did what I tell people not to do, which is reading everything I could on the internet and buying everything I could try and find to fix it. And well, of course it didn't. So I finally decided to go to a proper dermatologist and while I'm like straight up obsessed with his genius... Just a few months later, my melasma is now almost completely gone thanks to a simple pill that is covered by my insurance and cost me like two bucks a month. So now I'm like trying out a prescription retinoid and seeing changes in my skin no cosmetic can touch. Moral of the story, get one-on-one help, which is what I say about nutrition all the time. And I'm sorry that I was like not living according to my own advice, but get your one-on-one help do your research because it might actually be covered by your insurance or the solutions might cost way less than you think it will because I know access is a real problem. Also, retinoids, life-changing stuff. Okay, number two on my list, a little bit more like let's buy it now. Olay non-alcoholic margaritas. With each passing year, my body gets less tolerant of my love of a delicious drink. And so alcohol is an increasingly rare occurrence for me but I still like something delicious, you know? And I hate super sweet drinks. Like if I wanted something sweet, I would have candy and not a mocktail. And I've been drinking these Olay things like crazy since I discovered them last summer. And to me, they're the perfect zero proof drink. Lots of flavor, not that sweet, and feels like a real drink when you put it over ice, which I totally recommend because don't guzzle it out of the can. It won't be the same. I'm pretty sure that you can find them Canada wide. And for my American friends, a few things that I like, Try Curious Elixirs, Gia, and Kin. Okay, finally, this is also one you're probably not expecting. (laughs) You're like, let's talk about like a new shoe or something, but let's actually talk libraries. 
I have always bought books since before I started writing them. Like I just loved the idea of having them forever to reread, to share, and to pass on. But last year, I was really trying to buckle down on expenses. And I was like, let's get into this library business. So instead of reading the maybe one book every month or two that I could afford in my budget, I could now blast through a book a week if I felt like it. And holy heck, is it so much fun to just like read whatever I want as much as I want. And I still buy books because I know how directly buying a book affects the livelihood of the people, myself included, who write them. But libraries have enabled me to throw my reading habit into overdrive. And I'm like so grateful that they exist. Okay, three kind of like maybe one not unexpected and two kind of unexpected things that I'm obsessed with. But now that we've got that little amuse-bouche in our bellies, it's time for the main course. Let's get nerdy about sugar, like real nerdy. This is the longest, most in-depth solo episode I've done so far. So let me channel Wes Anderson and say that we're going to allow this drama to unfold in five acts. The first, what is sugar actually? Act two, what does our body do with sugar? Act three, the science of sugar and our health, things like inflammation, is sugar inflammatory or diabetes? Act four, what about sugar alternatives like stevia or Splenda? And then we'll wash that all down with a final bow on how to make real life choices about sugar in your diet. So get cozy, unbutton those pants because you're going to be full up with nutrition facts after this one. Sugar, the molecule, the muse, the enigma, like so many things in nutrition. We talk about it all the time, but maybe you don't fully understand it. So if you've ever wondered what sugar actually is, like as a molecule, you're not alone. We talk about sugar like it's just one thing, but it's actually a whole category of carbohydrates, aka carbs, aka the most misunderstood nutrient of the decade. Carbohydrates get their name from carbon, the element of life that forms the backbone of a carbohydrate molecule, and water, because carbohydrates are essentially hydrated carbon. Get it? Okay. Sugars can be single molecules, like glucose, or double sugars, literally two sugars bound together, like sucrose. If you see O-S-E at the end of the word, that's your clue it's a sugar. We call sugars simple carbs because they're small. They're the building blocks of the carbohydrate world, like amino acids are to proteins. In fact, starches and fibers are complex carbohydrates because they're long chains of sugars. So when people say that all carbs break down into sugar, it's kind of true, but also way off base in what they're telling you when they say that. For example, Fiber is a carb, and by definition, you can't break it down. Sugars can be found in food, but our body also makes its own sugars for various metabolic reasons. And the energy currency of our body, despite what the carnivore bros will tell you, is a sugar, glucose, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. There are a bunch of different types of sugar that we find in our food, like glucose, which is found in fruits and veggies, or fructose, which is found in fruit, or sweeteners, like in Canada, we call it glucose fructose, or in the States, you'll most often see high fructose corn syrup. When most of us say sugar, we mean table sugar, the white stuff we buy at the grocery store. 
Table sugar is actually sucrose, which is a molecule of glucose bound to a molecule of fructose. And I say fructose and like fructose interchangeably, you know, tomato, tomato. Lactose, the naturally occurring sugar in dairy, is also a double sugar. One molecule of glucose paired with one molecule of the lactose. So now that we have a bit of the language, which is important because I don't want you thinking that you've got like table sugar running through your veins, let's move on to act two and talk about how sugar is used by the body. As much as we like to pretend we are pure digital consciousness, we are housed in a body and that body has needs, a lot of needs. One of the most basic needs it has is for the actual energy to operate. Like how you can't blast your favorite Taylor Swift song a thousand times if you're at 10% battery. Anytime we eat, our bodies break down the chemical bonds in the food and doing so releases energy. Carbohydrates, whether we're talking sugars or starches, have the energy potential of four calories per gram. So when our body breaks sugar down, we get energy. That's not only a good thing, it's essential to human life. And what form of energy does our body crave? It's glucose. Glucose is the energy currency of our body, including our greedy little brains that gobble up roughly 25% of our glucose supply staring at TikTok and trying to figure out what to make for dinner. So our metabolism has an incredibly elegant banking system to handle its distribution throughout our body. There's a balance to be struck. Like Goldilocks when she broke into that poor bear's cabin, we're not looking for too much or too little. We need a just right moment. So when our body breaks down carbohydrates from sugars or starches into glucose, it gets absorbed into our blood sugars and we say that blood sugars rise. This is what's supposed to happen. You need money in your bank account so you can spend it. I cannot make this any clearer. Your body was designed for your blood sugars to rise. That's what the body wants. Sensors in your body notice that blood sugars are rising. And so it tips off your pancreas, this weird floppy organ under your ribs, to produce a hormone called insulin. Insulin is there to help you spend or save that glucose by taking it to hungry cells for spending or saving for a rainy day as glycogen in your liver and muscles. When insulin does its job, sugars get used up by your cells and blood sugars fall. You can think of insulin as the key that unlocks the door to the cell so the glucose can go inside. And when insulin does its job and the blood sugars start to drop below the just right point, another hormone takes over, glucagon. Glucagon helps liberate glucose stores from the liver to help blood sugars rise again, and it can help initiate a hunger cascade to drive you to eat so the body can get another shipment of glucose. That's blood sugar regulation in a nutshell, but you guys know it's way more complex than that. For example, not all foods or meals raise blood sugars the same. And sometimes, like when you have diabetes, it's not that easy for insulin to do its job and get all the glucose into your cells. We're going to focus on non-diabetic metabolism in this episode because diabetes would need a whole other hour. So we'll just have to put that one on the to-do list. And before we get into act three, we need to talk about some other stuff with respect to like normal non-diabetic metabolism because we haven't even covered how different foods raise blood sugars. Fats essentially don't raise blood sugars. Carbohydrates do, and proteins 
they raise blood sugars less than carbs, but definitely more than fats. And as much as the keto, paleo, carnivore folks would have you believe, a food or meal's impact on your blood sugars, aka its glycemic impact, is not synonymous with the healthfulness or the nutrient density of that food. That was a mouthful. So let's go over that one again. Butter will not raise your blood sugars. It has no carbs. Blueberries will. They have carbs. That does not mean that butter is a healthier food than blueberries. I am using a very clear example here because this argument is used in some pretty slippery ways. Like how Glucose Goddess says it's healthier to eat eggs for breakfast instead of oats because the eggs won't raise your blood sugars. And like so much in this world, there is a kernel of truth here. Eggs will have minimal impact on your blood sugars in that moment. But in the long term, that breakfast will have negative health consequences that the oats just won't, including possibly raising your risk of diabetes. What? Like how? Like I said, the shiz is complex. So shady internet folks making it sound simple, they're doing so for a reason. So obviously we need to talk about how specific foods impact our blood sugars before we look at the research around sugar and our health. We have two measures for this, the glycemic index and the glycemic load. Sounds same, same, but they're actually different. The glycemic index measures a reference amount like 50 grams of a food and compares it to the same amount of white sugar. Anything that gets a GI of 55 and under is considered low glycemic. Anything that gets 70 or more is high glycemic. But this data isn't perfect because it doesn't take into account how many actual carbs the food has, just the ability of those carbs to raise blood sugar, which is why glycemic load exists. It takes the GI and tempers it with the actual carb count of a food. So a higher GI food like watermelon, which actually has very few carbs per serving, has a low glycemic load. So when folks tell you that watermelon is quote unquote too high in sugar, you can tell those folks to mind their business. The other factor that messes with our ability to use GI in real life is that we rarely eat single foods. Yes, we maybe have an apple as a snack or a glass of soy milk, but mostly we eat foods together. And your glycemic response will be impacted by so many things about that meal like whether it has acid, fat, protein, or fiber, how processed or broken down or easily digested the food is, like how juice is essentially pre-digested, but an almond doesn't give up its nutrients so easily. You've got to crunch and churn and use a lot of enzymes to break that sucker down. And then you have the size of the meal. Did you fill a big plate or eat a little less? Also, now that we're thinking about it, like, what is your current health situation? Are you stressed? Are you sick? Do you have diabetes? Heck, even the meal you ate before this one can influence your glycemic response to the meal in front of you. Like I said, it's complex. So when you see all those convincing and scientific seeming little graphs of how a single food or a food followed by a food raises blood sugars, they're vastly oversimplifying what is actually going on in that bot of yours for the benefit of keeping you tuned in for more blood sugar hacks. And at this point, you may be like, yeah, but then what should I eat? And I promise that's coming in act five. 
but right now I need to load you up with the nuance and science so you understand why I make the recommendations I do. So the one thing that will segue nicely into a nerdy act three is that despite all of these complexities, we know that the research confirms that as a dietary pattern, if we eat more lower GI foods than higher GI foods, that is a good thing. But remember what I always say, pattern over plate. A glass of oat milk won't destroy your blood sugars. But a dietary pattern of mostly ultra-processed, fiber-poor foods isn't a great idea long-term. So now it's time for the nutrition lady to put her research cards on the table. Everything I just talked about is basic human physiology and nutrition. But like we've learned with like the omega-3, omega-6 story, counseling on just the physiological mechanisms can lead to big oops when we actually test these theories in humans. So let's talk about evidence-based dietary guidelines and what the research says about sugars and our health before we start talking about the practical how-tos. I am always looking to the research to see what's new. My favorite thing to ask myself is, how do I know what I know? And am I sure about what I know? Even things, especially things I've been saying for a decade or more, before I go and do a podcast like this or I go and do a talk, I dive back into the research. I was like, what's new? prove me wrong or prove me right, either way. But it's really important as a health professional to see what's new, what's changing, and how we can always refer to the science to help you build a healthier body. And here, the science on sugar is less damning than you think. For example, there's essentially no evidence, that's right, no evidence, that eating a healthy, moderate glycemic, dietary pattern with occasional sugar, like a weekend ice cream or a couple of cookies on a Tuesday, will cause you any harm. What does exist is research that shows us as our overall glycemic impact of our diet increases, there are actual risks. A high glycemic dietary pattern is associated with risk of type 2 diabetes, meaning yes, eating mostly high glycemic index or glycemic load foods might set you up for blood sugar issues. A consistently high glycemic diet has even been associated with acne. But what about like actual sugar? Theoretically, if your blood sugars are too high on a regular basis, that's a driver of chronic inflammation, which thereby increases your risk for many chronic diseases from diabetes to cardiovascular disease to yes, acne. However, much of this research is coming from an animal model. So when you see folks saying sugar is inflammatory, They're incorrect. No one food or meal is inflammatory, nor can it shift your immune response into chronic inflammation. If you put a spoon of sugar in your vinaigrette, you didn't just turn your kale salad into an inflammation station. We have some data to suggest that high blood sugars post-meal increases inflammatory markers in the immediate sense. But there's also others that don't. What is much clearer that as a pattern, a high added sugar intake is more likely to drive inflammation, but it takes a chronic dietary pattern to contribute to a chronic inflammatory state. And in fact, the clearest connection between sugar and the development of type 2 diabetes is in the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages like pop. My Canadian is showing. I call it pop, not soda. (laughs) Pop, energy drinks, and sweetened coffee. 
A 2022 paper in Nature Review's Endocrinology reported on the evidence around sugar-sweetened beverages and health risks. In the paper, citing a 2015 systematic review, like the highest level of evidence, that found that for each daily serving of sweet drink you add to your life, there is a 13% increase in your risk of type 2 diabetes, even after adjusting for the impact of weight and the contribution to weight gain. Another 2020 systematic review confirmed a similar increase in risk for every 250 milliliters a metric cup you add to your dietary pattern. Now, before you go and blow this out of whack, these are averages. That does not mean that if you had a Coke at the movies, you're going to get diabetes. Instead, if you drink no sugar-sweetened beverages and started drinking one every single day of your life, your risk is going to go up by 13%. And that still doesn't mean you'll get diabetes. It's about weighing all of our risks. If you're low risk, you eat mostly whole foods, you move your body all the time, and a 3 p.m. pop makes your life worth living, that might be reasonable for you. So what about things that are sweet or easily digestible carbs like refined carbohydrates, ultra-processed food, or fruit. A 2017 systematic review of food groups and risk of type 2 diabetes found that three food groups, whole grains, fruit, and dairy, were associated with lower risk of type 2 diabetes. And three food groups, red meat, processed meat, and there you go, sugar-sweetened beverages, were associated with higher risk. Refined grains in this particular paper didn't have a significant connection. So no, you don't have to throw away your baguette. Please don't throw away your baguette. (laughs) Again, pattern over plate. I could spend a whole other hour talking about specific studies, but I know I'm going to lose you. So I want to wrap this up by saying that all the studies I used to create this episode will be linked in the show notes. So you can fact check me if you want to. We're going to get into the real world stuff now, starting with sugar alternatives because I get a ton of questions about these, starting with, aren't artificial sweeteners like even worse for you than sugar? You might have seen, I've seen a lot of posts that link artificially sweetened beverages with risk of diabetes. And as with much of the information on the internet, it always starts with a grain of truth that then gets massively blown out of proportion. We do actually have studies that suggest an increased association between artificially sweetened drinks and diabetes. But here's the thing, association is not causation. For example, people who are worried about their blood sugars or their weight often choose artificially sweetened drinks to avoid sugar. So there will be an association between people with diabetes and these drinks. But it wasn't the drinks that caused their physical situation, you know what I'm saying? And if you've seen the one about aspartame being a carcinogen, aspartame is a zero-calorie sweetener made out of amino acids, and the World Health Organization called it a possible carcinogen, which could take me the whole rest of the episode to explain fully, but American Cancer Society did a really good job of debunking this whole WHO group 2B carcinogen situation, so I've also linked that one in the show notes. Essentially, the WHO made this call based on some conflicting animal studies, and this 2B classification does not actually mean aspartame is likely to give you cancer. But let's just say, like, theoretically, it was possible. The dose you would need is excessive, like more than a dozen cans a day every single day. I don't know. Are you doing that? I'm not doing that. Like, 
I love a Coke Zero every now and then, but like 12 would feel a bit excessive. What's more, other regulatory bodies, many other regulatory bodies, including the European Food Safety Authority, do not agree with this classification. And I specifically use that example because I know how we love to use the this is banned in Europe trope. So no, they're still living Coke Zero in Paris too. And really, the only folks who need to avoid aspartame are those who A, don't like the taste of it, I get it, and B, have a genetic condition called PKU because they actually can't metabolize it. It's dangerous for them. But there's also one more sweeteners myth I want to bust before I get into how to use or not use alternative sweeteners in our daily diet. And that's the one about erythritol. Because pretty recently, the press had a field day with this 2023 study in the journal called Nature Medicine. It's a big journal. And this linked circulating levels of erythritol, which is a sugar alcohol, to heart disease. There's a big problem here. The body also makes erythritol. And in that study, the scientists didn't bother asking folks whether they'd consumed erythritol. So they have no proof that dietary erythritol is what caused the higher circulating blood levels of erythritol. And in fact, it could be that the blood levels of erythritol had more to do with their age or their blood sugar regulation instead. So now that we've got these bigger myths out of the way, we can talk about how to use these sweeteners in your everyday life. My philosophy is to eat fewer sweets in general and let your taste buds slowly adapt to less sweet food. Now, one of the things I do most often in practice is say, if someone gets like a, a venti caramel latte or whatever, I will say, okay, you're going to ask for it half sweet and you are going to drink that half sweet drink that's not quite going to light up your taste buds in your brain the same way that full sweet drink did, but you're going to do it until your taste buds adjust. And they do. And then some people find after that, they can go down to a latte. I mean, maybe they want to stay half sweet, but other people are like, wow, even that started feeling too sweet. And now I drink a latte. So taste buds can change. They adapted to liking all of this hyper palatable, hyper sweet food, and they can adapt to get a little less used to it, a little less. We're still kind of hardwired to like sweets, but a little less adapted. So even if a food is sweetened without sugar, my advice still holds. And the reason for this is that our taste buds adapt. If our taste buds strongly prefer sweet, hyperpalatable food, you are more likely to reach for the hyper-processed stuff over whole foods in their natural state every single time. It's more likely you're going to choose a snack bar over an apple in all of its sweet, tart, astringent glory. Earthy, slightly bitter broccoli will stand no chance against a box mac and cheese, you know? So what I'm saying here is use whatever sweetener you enjoy the taste of, just less of it even if you have diabetes. I said I wasn't going to talk too much about diabetes, but I think this is a really important point to raise. The clinical practice guidelines from Diabetes Canada. So like they put all the best diabetes experts together in a room and they come up with these guidelines that all the other health professionals like me are advised to use. Even those clinical practice guidelines that advise 
avoidance of sugar-sweetened beverages. The research is so crystal clear here on sweet drinks. They advise avoidance of sugar-sweetened beverages. They also advise lower glycemic dietary patterns. Nowhere do they recommend eliminating sugar entirely. And if you're like, wait, are you, are you like pushing some quote unquote sugar agenda? I'm really not. What I'm pushing is evidence-based nutrition. I don't want you to eat more sugar if you're not already doing it. But if you're someone who, you know, absorbs all of these negative messages about sugar and somehow feels guilty because you like, like a little sugar in your coffee, that's what I'm trying to convince you is completely unnecessary and actually probably more harm than it's worth. It's a choice based on individual preference and need. For someone with diabetes with good blood sugar control, like a small sweet, say a small cookie at the end of a balanced meal might be okay for someone. While someone else with a big sweet tooth or less blood sugar control, like their sugars aren't meeting their targets, it might be a better idea to bake those cookies with Splenda or monk fruit. For me personally, I didn't grow up with what we call sugar pop. So I genuinely prefer the taste of a vanilla Coke Zero, but I'd rather eat a few real sugar candies than those zero sugar ones. Like I just, they don't do it for me, right? This is about honoring your taste buds and your unique dietary needs versus, you know, following some wellness rhetoric that's teaching you to fear something you don't need to fear, which makes this the perfect point to transition. Maybe we have already transitioned into our final act how to make real life choices about sugar. In order to do this, we need to hold a bunch of seemingly opposing truths in our mind at the same time. That while we eat far too many added sugars as a society, having a little sugar in the context of a healthy diet is 100% okay. That alternative sweeteners can actually help us manage our blood sugars, but they also keep feeding our preference for sweet foods. But high glycemic dietary patterns are associated with negative health outcomes, but we don't have to avoid a food because it's quote unquote high glycemic. And now that we're firmly planted in the garden of nuance, we can search for some official recommendations. Like what do the most trusted authorities suggest in terms of sugar consumption for otherwise healthy folks? The World Health Organization, I know, here we go again, (laughs) but the World Health Organization advises consuming less than 10% of your daily calories as added sugars. And while not all agree with that advice, most do. However, as a dietitian who doesn't encourage counting calories, it's a wee bit less helpful than you might expect because how do you figure that number out? Which is why I really like the American Heart Association's guidelines. They give it to you in absolute numbers, which are unfortunately gendered, but I'm going to ungender them right after, so bear with me. So the AHA recommends that men consume no more than 36 grams of added sugars, which is the equivalent of nine teaspoons of added sugars. For women, that number is 25 grams or six teaspoons. This is super helpful if you live in a country like the US that clearly labels added sugars on nutrition facts. Unfortunately, that's not us in Canada, but that's for another time. (laughs) But let's talk about what these guidelines really mean. How much food do you need? Like, that's what they're saying. Like when we, for many of our guidelines, when we distribute them into like, this is for men and this is for women, it's based on some assumptions that men have larger bodies and higher metabolic rates and need more food. So how much food you need 
dictates how much sugar you can eat. So if you're larger, more active, say a six foot tall marathoner, that 36 gram number is for you. If you're smaller and less active, say a 5'4 desk jockey, that 25 gram number is for you. And for anyone fearful of sugar at this point, recognize this is a daily recommendation. The American Heart Association wants to help you prevent heart disease. And they're telling you even to do that, you can still have this sugar in your budget. This is a budget. Obviously, you don't have to use it all. You're not going to be like, oh, I'm not meeting my daily recommended sugar. No, it's not like vitamin D or iron. Like you don't have to eat that much. But what I hope it does is reassure you that having a little bit of dark chocolate every night after dinner or a spoonful of sugar in your salad dressing or your morning cappuccino is like no big deal. And of course, sometimes you might go over that daily amount. Pattern over plate, right? Now, I recommend that you are cautious. You know, if we're going to talk sugar as a whole, we also have to specifically talk about sugar-sweetened beverages. I do recommend that you're cautious about sugar-sweetened beverage intake. Like I said before, if you generally eat a balanced diet and that one soda a day is your thing, maybe. If it's one of those tiny cans, even better. But the major reason for this is that a single 355 mil can, is that like is that like 12 ounces, 11 ounces, something like that? I'm Canadian, don't hold it against me. But that single can of Coke is 39 grams of added sugars. It's more than your daily budget all on its own. Another reason why sugar-sweetened beverages are a bigger issue than just sugar is that liquid sugar calories do a better job of raising your blood sugars. Maybe we're going to, I hate saying this word because of the internet now, but it's like, it will actually spike your blood sugars. Like what does a blood sugar spike look like? It looks like you after a can of Coke. They will also, those liquid calories, do absolutely nothing to quell your hunger in the same way that like a nice brownie would. The other thing I need to be crystal clear about is that the only recommendation of avoidance or caution is around sugar-sweetened beverages and added sugars. This is sugar, but it's also brown sugar, which is just white sugar with molasses added to it, but it's also coconut sugar and honey and fruit juice concentrates. And that's maybe something we need to clear up as well. Sugar is sugar. Like if someone calls their cookie recipe, quote unquote, healthy because it contains two cups of dates or coconut sugar instead of refined white sugar, that's a nope. Sugar is sugar. Use the one you love and use less of it. Yes, dates have fiber. And you know, I love fiber. You know, I love dates too. Like I'm not saying this to rag on dates and be like, don't eat dates. I'm saying this to prove a very clear point. Dates still raise your blood sugars. Sugar raises blood sugars, dates raise blood sugars, coconut sugar raises blood sugars. Yes, maple syrup has tiny amounts of minerals in it, but you'd need to like drink it in order to get minerals in meaningful amounts, which obviously I do not recommend. Choose the sweetener you love and use less of it. Finally, I promise on this topic, while we're going to be mindful of added sugars, you know what we're absolutely not limiting? naturally occurring sugars in fruit, vegetables, dairy, if you consume it, whole grains, it's just not a thing. The next time some internet weirdo tells you that carrots or beets or bananas have too much sugar, go tell them where to stick that banana. Whew. Okay. We did it. 
Sugar 101. If you're like, wow, there weren't a lot of specifics there on how to choose sugar in your daily life. There was. I mean, I gave you absolute numbers. We talked about sugar as sugar. We also talked about using less of it and, and training down your sweet tooth. But I think that is the point. The amount of hullabaloo around sugar, like there's got to be 75 rules. And if, you know, the moon is full, you can have coconut sugar, but like only before noon, like all of that is hooey. We know what healthy eating looks like when we close our eyes. More plants, more whole foods. And whatever you're eating just occasionally, we're not sweating the small stuff. Like it's just not a thing. The majority of our diet impacts the majority of our health. Like that's just how it works. So before we say goodbye, we need to go to a community question. And it's juicy as hell. And actually, I had a really hard time choosing one from all of the ones you asked over on the All Sorts Podcast Instagram. Hot tip, if you want to be able to ask these community questions, you have to go follow us on the All Sorts Podcast. It's at the All Sorts Pod on Instagram, because that's where I put the call out for these community questions. But this is the question that got asked the most, like multiple people asked it. So majority rules. How do you stop sugar cravings? Sugar cravings are way more complex than you might think. I mean, of course they are, because why is nothing easy? But I see two main drivers of sugar cravings in my practice. The first and most common is food restriction and general undereating. When we label a food as quote unquote bad and restrict our access to it, we are more likely to crave it and to overeat it when we do get access to it. Yep, that's right. Let me be clear. Denying yourself sweets leads to sugar cravings. And when folks hear this, the next thing they typically say to me is like, well, I can't just let myself eat as much as I want because I won't stop. Actually, you will. But you have to trust yourself enough to let it happen. And you can't do that like, okay, well, I'll let myself eat as much as I want, but I'll only do it on Saturdays. BS. Because you're still restricting the other six days a week. And when you tell your brain no, when you make something illicit, when you make something restricted, your brain will only want it more. Kind of like that limited edition shoe drop you weren't able to get. And now you blew $3,000 on the internet trying to get those shoes. You know, I have a sneaker head in my house. Well, I know. Instead, you have to let yourself eat what you crave at the same time as eating all of the nourishing foods your body needs. Because this all or nothing mindset is another product of restriction based eating. Because I see this all the time. And I've even seen pushback from wellness folks on the internet about this. And they're like, this whole like, just eat whatever you want thing has gone too far because that's not healthy. Make no mistake, when people have a food and weight neutral or a non-diet practice, we're not telling you to never eat a vegetable again. We are trying to make you less fearful of eating all the other things because when you're able to just see food as food, you realize here are the nutrients I need, here are the foods that make me happy, and those things go together. Instead of all of this sort of like garbage, which many of us have been absorbing since like we were old enough to understand language, you have to let yourself eat what you crave. At the same time, please let me repeat it. 
as eating the fruits, the vegetables, the whole grains, the legumes, all these kind of things until it becomes so normal that it loses its luster. I speak not just professionally, but if you're like, oh, well, she's a dietitian, she's never had, you know, these kind of issues. Actually, I don't know, like, gosh, it's, it's been a while now, but for much of my life, I was the kind of person that if you put a family size bag of chips in front of me, I couldn't stop myself until the chips were gone. It was my illicit food. I didn't let it in the house. I restricted my intake of it and my access to it. And that means every time I did have access, it was just way overboard. I had to let myself eat chips until I was so sick of eating chips that all of a sudden you're like, oh, sometimes I want chips, but sometimes I don't want chips. Chips can be in the house and I can have a handful. Sometimes I want more than that. Sometimes I don't want them at all. You have to create this neutral space around this food. Otherwise, it makes it so much harder to truly meet your healthy eating goals. And I have to also take this opportunity because this sort of goes hand in hand to tell you that under eating will also lead to blood sugar abnormalities and cravings. If you don't give your body the energy and the nutrients it needs, it will ramp up hunger and cravings significantly to try and force you to stay nourished. I know that there are so many of us who internalize the messages that a smaller body is a better body, and we may undereat in hopes of achieving that. But not only does that deprive us of the pleasures of food, it also leaves us preoccupied with food, which is a nasty duality to have to live with. And if this message is resonating with you, I highly recommend talking to a food neutrality or intuitive eating dietitian who can help you with this. And I do hope you'll seek one out. And even if that's not affordable for you, to immerse yourself in their messages on things like Instagram and TikTok and unfollow everyone else who is making you feel nervous or restricted or worried about eating certain foods. So now that we've got that more habitual and mindset cause of sugar cravings out of the way, there's also a second more physiological driver of sugar cravings, erratic blood sugars. Yes, we're talking about actual blood sugar spikes and crashes, not the internet oatmeal kind. And if you can remember way back in act two, we talked about how blood sugars go up, insulin goes to work, and when they go back down, glucagon goes to work. And part of its job is to make you hungry. So if you drink a Coke, I don't know why I'm choosing Coke. It's just easy. And all of us know, <laughs> but like if you drink a Coke on an empty stomach, all 39 grams of that sugar will enter your bloodstream quickly, which means a lot of insulin and a lot of cell doors opening quickly and a quick blood sugar crash as all the sugar moves into those cells. The deeper and faster that crash, the more your body thinks it's starving and the more strongly you will crave what your body knows will raise blood sugars quickly, which is more sugar. You know, when you are starving, when you are so hangry, you can barely see straight, your brain isn't like, can I have a little handful of almonds? No, it's like sugar. Give me a muffin. Give me some orange juice. Give me some candy now. So in a normal non-diabetic blood sugar metabolism, how do we avoid this? Well, we drink that pop with a protein, fat, and fiber-rich meal that will slow it down. We enjoy that dried fruit with a little handful of almonds. That'll do it as well. It's not about 
outright avoiding any of these things. Of course, we don't want like blood sugar spikes and crashes all the time. It'll make us hangry. It'll lead to cravings over time, over years. It's going to contribute to negative health outcomes. Like everyone once in a while, like we're going to eat a handful of candy. And then yeah, 10 minutes later, we're going to be hungry. We're probably going to need to eat something else. Remember, pattern over plate. This is the biggest message that you can take from this. We do need to be mindful of our sugar, but it's always pattern over plate. Okay, friends, there you have it. Sugar 101. If you love the nerdy nutrition stuff, go back and check out my other solo nutrition episode on inflammation, which was actually the top episode on Spotify last year. And be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the All Sorts Podcast, which is produced by myself and edited by Brian McCalman. We are grateful to live and work and play on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Until next week, friends, be well.